Why all the saints and sages who discussed of the two worlds so learnedly are thrust like foolish prophets forth, their words to scorn are scattered, and their mouths are stopped with dust. That was stanza 25 of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam by Edward Fitzgerald, first published in 1859. You're listening to episode 61 of the National Secular Society podcast, produced by Emma Park. Today I'm going to be discussing nine books, including Fitzgerald's Rubaiyat, that form part of what you might call Britain's alternative intellectual tradition. Instead of looking at our Judeo-Christian roots, my guests and I will be making the case for a few books that have helped to shape the currents of secularism, free thought and humanism, which are an equally vital part of our society today, but which are often underappreciated and underrepresented in the cultural mainstream. In their time, some of these books were banned, others simply ignored. All of them, in one way or another, demonstrate the vital importance of freedom of thought and speech to human progress and the ability of the individual to flourish. With me today are two modern representatives of these traditions. Maddie Goodall is Humanist Heritage Coordinator at Humanists UK. She is in charge of the Humanist Heritage Project, which looks specifically at the impact of humanism on Britain's history and culture. As will hopefully become apparent, the traditions of secularism, free thought and humanism are often inextricably intertwined. My second guest, Bob Forder, is NSS historian and the great-great-grandson of Robert Forder, the Society's first paid secretary. He is also a bookseller and book collector. I have asked Bob and Maddie to each choose three books to talk about. I'll also be adding three choices of my own. In case you're interested, there is further information about all nine books on the website. A final disclaimer, this list is only a starting point. If you have further suggestions for books for secularists, please do let us know through Twitter or email us at podcast at secularism.org.uk. Maddie Goodall and Bob Forder, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. So for this podcast on books for secularists, I asked you both to come up with two or three different books that engage with the classical enlightenment, free thought and scientific humanist aspects of our intellectual tradition in Britain. And in particular, books that have been banned due to religious pressure, which celebrate free and open inquiry, that resist oppressive religious dogma or any narrow ideology, that embody the principles of secularism and or that explore related themes, particularly freedom of speech. And books also that people, our listeners, would hopefully like to maybe read if, if they're interested. We'll start off with Bob. One of your books was um, Thomas Paine's Age of Reason. So could you just tell us a bit about that and why you chose it? Well, what a starting point. Uh, Paine's an extraordinary character who was a central figure in not one, but two revolutions on separate continents in North America and France. The Age of Reason was actually one of his later works published in three parts, the first English edition dating to 1794. By that time, Paine had already published works such as Common Sense, his clarion call to American colonists to fight for their independence and the rights of man, which set down his radical views on the relationship that should exist between the citizen rather than the subject and the government. I chose the book for two reasons. First, because of Paine's great talent for explaining enlightenment ideas in simple but attractive prose. All Paine's ideas can be found among earlier writers and philosophers, but his contribution was to distill those ideas, bring them together and explain them. Second, 
because the age of reason has had and continues to have a huge influence on secularists ever since it was published. It promoted enlightenment ideas to the population at large in a way no other publication ever has. The book begins with Paine making his purpose clear, and I quote, It has been my intention for several years past to publish my thoughts upon religion. And just a few lines down the page, we find this short paragraph. I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, by the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, by the Protestant church, nor any church I know of. My own mind is my own church. And that is it in seven words. And it's that idea that that has been really influential, I think, on, on later free thought, this idea of complete intellectual independence. Yep, that is. Uh, in terms of these um, criteria, was the book ever banned due to religious pressure? Yes, it certainly was. Payne had been hounded out of England years earlier, following his publication of uh, Rights of Man, by what he described as God and King mobs, appalled by support for a republic in America and France, and he was tried in his absence for seditious and blasphemous libel. He never returned to England. However, subsequent publishers of his work were prosecuted and forced to cease publication, and the book didn't reappear again until 1818, when Richard Carlyle published it and found himself in Dorchester jail for seven years as a result. You said that it was very influential on, on later secularists. Was there, were there any particular... Um, people that Paine influenced within the secularist tradition? Well, I, I think he just runs like a thread, really, through certainly through the 19th century and even beyond. Uh, Bradlaugh constantly refers to him. So does Foote, who comes later, both presidents of the National Secular Society. Carlyle puts his whole position on these things down to the fact that he read Paine. So I think he, he is an almost seminal point in the growth of popular free thought in the 19th and into the 20th century. And finally, Bob, why should um, listeners today um, still want to read Paine? What, do, what does he have to say to secularists in the 21st century? I, th I think he's just a touchstone for the liberal ideas, the free thinking ideas that underlie secularism and indeed humanism. I mean, one of the problems we have as a movement, isn't it? We get in a terrible tangle about the words, what we call ourselves, secularists, free thinkers, humanists, but there is a common thread there. And it's those seven words, Emma. My own mind is my own church. Maddie, as a humanist, would you agree with that? I would, I would. And I, I think those seven words are very powerful indeed. And, and Maddie, then uh, moving on to your first choice, you've chosen quite an unusual um, book. Would you like to introduce it for us? Yeah, sure. So it's great, actually, that this comes after talking about pain because it's so, so relevant. So both of the choices that I've made draw on research I've carried out as part of the Humanist Heritage Project, and they both, I think, reflect an interest in 
kind of diversifying free thought history a bit and its canon as well. Um, they were both radicals and they both shared concerns at the heart of exactly as Bob said, humanism and secularism, um, by whichever name you give it. Um, so freedom of speech, conscience and education. Um, and the first text that I've chosen is by Robert Wedderburn and it's the, uh, his defence mounted at his trial for blasphemy in 1820. Robert Wedderburn was the Jamaican-born son of an enslaved woman and her enslaver, Scottish sugar planter James Wedderburn. And although Wedderburn himself was freed at birth, this early experience of injustice and a, a very evident distaste for the supposed or claimed Christianity of brutal enslavers like his father really coloured Wedderburn's lifelong radicalism in politics and in religion. And probably as much as anything to have a platform for his radical political ideas, he became licensed as a Unitarian preacher and in 1819 opened a chapel in Soho. But he was promptly arrested on charges of blasphemous libel. He was fond of pointing out uh, inaccuracies or um, contradictions in the Bible. Um, and in the tradition of other champions of free speech, he mounted this vigorous defence in court, which was later published. It was published as the trial of Reverend Robert Wedderburn for blasphemy, containing a verbatim report of the defence, um, and was sold actually by Jane Carlyle. Um, he and Richard Carlyle were imprisoned together in Dorchester. So again, um, drawing on this, this thread of, uh, well, certainly booksellers selling pain and other radical um, materials. It's it's really relevant to that. He essentially mounts this incredibly eloquent defence of free speech, um, of the right to question um, political apparent truths, uh, religious truths, um, and uh, to use the title of uh, Hypatia Bradlaugh Bonner's later work, to question the concept of penalties upon opinion. So he writes again, and I'll, I'll follow Bob in, uh, in doing a quick quote from the work, if kings or priests were the architects of the human brain, they might with some justice dictate its operations. But since our faculties are produced by nature and directed by necessity, uncontrolled by their fiat, and since they have no more government over their own minds than they have over ours, it is the most arrogant presumption, the most ridiculous folly and the most diabolical tyranny to persecute us for our opinions. Maddie, do you think that Robert Wedderburn and, and his case is still relevant to debates about free speech today? I do. I do. I think, um, and I suppose I would say this as someone who's been researching the history of it, but I certainly think that uh, recognising not just how long these uh, debates have been taking place, um, but also uh, the, I suppose, the diversity of individuals who have, have fought, as I say, for, for the rights to free speech um, is important. And also, just to notice essentially the consistency in many ways of, of the arguments that have been put forward for for free speech um, and for free press, indeed. Great. Thanks, Maddie. Um, and just to chip in with my own um, first choice book, as a classicist by training, I've chosen um, Lucretius, a Roman poet from the first century BC, his epic work on the nature of the universe, De Rerum Natura. Um, this book was, um, this is a poem um, in six books, it's a, several thousand lines in total. It's a sort of anti-mythological epic. It's maybe the first important work um, in Western literature, which is a poem that sets out to present what the world looks like from a scientific, non-superstitious worldview. In, in some ways, you could say that Lucretius is the Richard Dawkins of the first century BC, in that he 
very much sees himself as a champion of reason against superstition. So what, what is the poem about? Well, it's, it is about trying to literally explain the whole universe in terms of the Epicurean theory, which is basically a scientific or sort of proto-scientific theory of the world, um, according to which everything is made of atoms and empty space. So um, atoms, small, uncuttable particles. So in many ways, it's quite prescient um, for sort of anticipating later um, atomic theory. So he starts with the very small, starts with, you know, trying to explain how matter, how substances can be made up of things which don't have qualities like colour and smell that visible objects have, why, why we even might think that um, there are invisible particles that we can't see that are so different from the evidence of our senses. Then he goes on to explain all sorts of different aspects of life which might make us um, inclined to religious belief if we didn't have a better explanation for them, um, such as why should the soul be mortal, not immortal? What's the soul made of? Is it made of something invisible which survives after death or is it made of atoms which sort of perish when the person perishes? And then he even goes on to explain things like lightning and thunder, um, the sun, the moon, meteorological phenomena, and um, ends in a very sort of dark way with a description of a plague at Athens, which is rather relevant for, for our modern times, and about how um, everyone was driven mad by the fear of death to the point where they, they even committed suicide because they were so afraid of death because they had not yet found true philosophy, um, which would have given them a sort of antidote to fear. He was writing at a time where there was a lot of political turmoil. Because of this, he was able, I think, to exercise free speech much more than the, the next generation, the later generations of Roman poets. So it is interesting that he really criticizes religious superstition very openly without making any bones about it. In fact, um, he has, at the, right at the beginning of, of his poem, he has a whole story of which he takes some Greek tragedy about a, a girl called Iphigenia, a princess who was killed by her own father in a human sacrifice in order to um, propitiate a particular goddess. In criticising um, the use of religion for this sort of superstitious purpose, um, which which pushes people to even kill their own children, um, he, he ends with a famous line, so great are the evils which religion has been able to induce. Um, sounds pithier in the Latin, but um, Voltaire said that um, this particular line would last as long as the world. So Lucretius had a really, I think, big influence on the history of free thought, of, of iconoclasm, intellectual icon iconoclasm. He sort of disappeared during the medieval period, but he was rediscovered in um, the early um, 15th century. And after that, he's sort of always been in the background, but didn't really become mainstream until the sort of 19th, 20th century because of his beliefs, which were considered virtually atheistic and not, not in keeping with the, the dominating um, Christian culture. At the same time, if you want a sense for his um, poetry, you've got to go to someone like John Milton in, in Paradise Lost, who was, who was very much against Lucretius um, in terms of his arguments, but really understood this, this aesthetic that he has of viewing the universe as a whole from this sort of perspective of, of almost the divine, but actually the non-divine with nature as this sort of impersonal force which governs people. That in itself is so important, isn't it, to the that the sense of that very, very long standing tradition of free thought of humanism, of, of secularism that goes right back to the ancient world and the ancient thinkers. Um, 
and certainly that's something that's been definitely really interesting to me that idea that far from being some kind of novel new invention within a, a an ultimately christian country or christian tradition of of thought of writing of literature actually there's this really long really rich tradition which is is based in skepticism and free thought and questioning um and in coming to essentially very secularist humanist conclusions about if we if we can't be sure of um of things beyond ourselves and what we can make sense of um and witness then it's up to us to to do the best we can on on earth now yeah absolutely Maddie. and i mean lucretius was, was not the first i mean he draws himself on a long tradition of, of greek thought with um um, philosophers like Democritus, um, Epicurus, and and even those who would have opposed him, such as Plato, just this whole um, flowering of thought in Athens and Rome, I think they were able to do it because they were able to think freely um, and speak freely to a large extent about all, all these, these questions. And I, and I think for me, Lucretius and the tradition he's in really demonstrates the, the closeness between free thought about religion and political freedom, because in a way, you cannot have one without the other. There are always forces who want to impose a particular ideology on everyone else. But that, that's not the way that we find progress has happened, intellectual progress in the West. So anyway, that's, that's part of, I think, the general argument of this podcast. But let's move on to a sort of later instantiation of that. So Bob, would you like to talk to us about your second um, book now? My second choice is a selection of Charles Bradlaugh's speeches published by the Freethought Publishing Company in 1890s, shortly before his death. Now, of course, the National Secular Society owes a huge debt to Bradlaugh, quite apart from his founding the organisation in 1866. It is his legacy that still inspires, particularly his struggle to enter Parliament. I like this book because it gives us a clue as to the power of the man as an orator and his ability to inspire thousands of followers. The collection of speeches begins with four he made from the bar of the House of Commons. Now, I do need to explain here that when he was uh, prevented from taking his seat, he couldn't enter the House of Commons as such. But they did allow him on four occasions to stand at the bar of the House of Commons and speak to the assembled members. I think the third of his speeches is perhaps the most spectacular. And I'm going to quote again because it gives us a, just a feel of the style of the man. I asked the House to deal legally and fairly with me. Legally, you are bound to deal. Fairly. As an assembly, you ought, even if you have differences with me, even if you think my opinion so obnoxious, even if you think that the politics with which you identify me in your minds are dangerous to you. And that's it, really, isn't it? That's Bradlaugh saying that I'm elected by my constituents. You don't have the right to forbid me from sitting here because the right to sit here is provided by the votes I got from my constituents. And then he concludes this speech with a characteristic flourish. I have no fear 
If I am not fit for my constituents, they shall dismiss me. But you never shall. The grave alone shall make me yield. Oohs and ahs from the assembled members. Yeah, it's wonderful rhetoric re reading Bradlaugh. You, you do get a sense he's, he's, he was a really, really amazing speaker. I mean, what did he stand for? He stood for free speech. He stood for democracy. He stood for liberalism, liberalism in its broadest sense. Maddie, onto you, a slightly, again, a different perspective on this um, long struggle um, for, of secularists. Someone who actually perhaps might have been influenced by Bradlaugh was certainly following in, in his wake. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, again, so I suppose it's coming through everything here, isn't it? This concept of being a champion of reason against superstition. And so my second choice is Lady Florence Dixie, born in 1855, uh, died at 50 in 1905, so young, um, unfortunately. She was uh, this incredible woman, writer, adventurer, war correspondent, women's football advocate, why not, uh, vegetarian society vice president, um, and just so many more things besides. Um, but she was also an avowed free thinker, and she expressed that in her writings both both literary, consciously literary, and otherwise. So she fervently championed the rights of women, not least in the education of their children, which, again, is very relevant now still. And she was fearlessly devoted to, to free thought. The particular text I've kind of chosen to highlight, I suppose, um, is Towards Freedom, which was first published in the Agnostic Annual in 1904, um, and then subsequently as a, a pamphlet. Um, and it was subtitled An Appeal to Thoughtful Men and Women. Um, and she used the essay to argue that reasonable laws can never emanate from superstition and that the service of man to fellow creatures is a nobler and more satisfying religion than that which incites to injustice and cruelty. And in that, I think she echoes Holyoke's original definition of secularism as, as being ultimately about human service and action in this life, which is, is the one we can be assured of. At the, at the heart of Towards Freedom, really, is this um, call particularly for, for women um, to, to embrace the secularist tradition, to embrace humanist thinking, and essentially to throw off the shackles of superstition, which they were very much kind of upholding in, in their lives and in their, their raising of children too. And although this wasn't banned or suppressed, I, I think it is notable that Dixie's humanism tends to get little mention in obituaries or indeed elsewhere, which is quite common, um, I think, in the lives of those who who weren't primarily or predominantly known for um, secularist activism, essentially. Um, her Oxford Dictionary of National Biography entry contains one sentence about her support for secularism um, and writing for the Agnostic Annual, and most of her contemporary obituaries ignored it as well. But this thread of women's humanist and secularist writing and activism is such an important part of the intellectual tradition, um, both both secularist and otherwise. And it's just vital, I, I think, to an accurate picture of the history, because um, although it's often seen as, as perhaps quite a masculine tradition, um, the role of women in it was really, really significant. And the, the literary guide, now the new humanist, uh, when they printed an obituary for her, they very much 
recognised that this was the case. So they, they write, it's difficult to accurately appraise the literary work of our deceased friend. Probably it was not characterised by any special genius, and few, if any, of her books may endure beyond the present generation. But it cannot be denied that her writings possessed human interest of an exceptional kind and appealed to an appreciative public. In these days of pretense and insincerity, Honesty of thought and expression is a virtue of no inconsiderable value, and Lady Florence Dixie, to her honour be it said, never hesitated throughout her strenuous life in saying what she actually thought and felt. She was in the best sense a humanitarian, and she aided almost every movement for the betterment of the human race. Which I think is is really remarkable. And, you know, the people that she was writing about in the case of Towards Freedom, when it was published in the Agnostic Annual, she was writing alongside uh, many of the uh, the men who have been better remembered, so people like Charles Watts, um, in fact, was uh, was featured in that same issue. Um, and she was making these arguments, which are not just very powerful and very powerfully put, but also very, um, I suppose, specific to, to the emancipation of women. And in that, she was again drawing on and is very much part of a tradition which uh, stretched long before her and, and long afterwards too, of women making these very powerful arguments for secularism and for humanism and for free thought. Would, would you say that it's it's difficult to see how women could really have been pro- properly emancipated in the West without um, secularist, non, non-religious traditions? Yeah, I think it would, because uh, it was really those people um, who were willing to stand outside of and, and in opposition to, oftentimes, very rigid notions of what it meant to be a woman, what it meant to be feminine, what it meant to be moral. Um, And that included, you know, everything from traditional kind of patriarchal ideas of of women and their role in society and their role within marriage and their role as kind of caregivers, uh, which obviously influenced, you know, all all of uh, this litany of other things, whether they could vote, whether they could work, whether they could own property. And that was very much recognised by these women who were part of this this tradition. Absolutely. And um, well, just to add in my second choice here, um, which is also 19th century, which is um, unsurprising as it's the, in a way the big century of secularism, if you like, and, and sort of being able to express one's doubts about the prevailing religion more freely than in previous centuries, well, between, let's say, between the first century BC and and the 19th century. So my choice is um, a relatively short poem called The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, written by um, an otherwise rather obscure poet called Edward Fitzgerald. Did either of you two um, come across this? Yeah, yeah, I have actually, and it was because... um... Uh, a really fascinating woman, again, a suffragist, who was a member of the Ethical Societies, had a copy of of the Rubia. It was Ernestine Mills. Um, so that was my certainly my first introduction to, <laughs> to Fitzgerald. I think that's actually interesting because the Rubat of Omar Khayyam unexpectedly became a massive late 19th century smash hit, both in Britain and America. Um, very unexpected because it's not Christian. It's very much sort of quite subversive and and against all of the values that you associate with high Victorian culture. So it it was first published in 1859, the same year, incidentally, as On the Origin of Species and Tennyson's great poem In Memoriam, um, considered of of much higher literary value in general by by the literary establishment. It purports to be a translation, but in my view, it's actually far from being just a translation of 
um, 75 rubaiyat. A rubai is um, a specific um, form in Persian poetry, um, which he, he took from poetry of the 10th and 11th centuries AD, which is like a sort of equivalent of a limerick, a very sort of witty, short poem, quite satirical. And Edward Fitzgerald was given a copy of, of a bunch of these rubaiyat, which were discovered in the Bodleian Library um, by a friend of his. And they were all attributed to someone called Omar Khayyam, um, who was a very well-known philosopher and mathematician and notorious religious skeptic um, who lived in Nishapur in Persia. It's, it's unclear whether Omar actually wrote any or all of these rubaiyat because they circulated anonymously originally. But what they do express is, is various forms of, of skepticism about the prevailing Islam. They also suggest that what really matters um, in life is just um, essentially more or less the same as, as Epicureanism, um, e eating, drinking and being merry, not worrying too much about tomorrow, not, not in a very sort of systematic way like um, Lucretius, but in, in a more sort of hedonistic way. These really appealed to Fitzgerald um, in the 19th century. He was just studying Persian for fun. He, he basically was a gentleman of independent means, and he just decided to learn Persian because um, he seems to have had a quite close relationship with, with the man who, who taught it to him. He decided that he would turn this, this sort of disparate group of limericks into a whole poem, into a sort of harmonious meditation on his place in the universe and on what, what life is really about. Um, he was very aware that the scepticism that he had towards religion um, very much set him at odds with his contemporaries. Um, he was also really shy and retiring. He was almost certainly homosexual at a time when it was, was very much forbidden. So he couldn't talk about his sexuality he couldn't talk about his um, religious skepticism publicly. So the only thing he could do was, was assume this mask of, of a Persian mathematician to write what, what purported to be a translation, but actually expressed his own views. So although his book wasn't banned and it actually became very popular, he had to do it in this way precisely because he had to sort of evade the senses of the thought and his identity at the time. So his poem started off not being known about at all, but then suddenly it was sort of discovered by the pre-Raphaelites, um, such as William Morris, and it became a sensation. Um, it was published in numerous editions. It, it certainly appealed to the secularist movement, but it also just generally was, was popular among people like Swinburne, Oscar Wilde. It, it caught something of, of the mood of, of, of hedonism and slight subversiveness towards the, the established religion of the late 19th century. And it was it was really popular right up until the 1920s and 30s, but then somehow got lost um, in the wake of World War II. But for me, it, it has this very distinctive humour and melancholy at the same time in its expression of what really matters is to sit under a tree um, with one's beloved of, of an unspecified gender um, and drink wine and just not worry about all these religious debates because um, ultimately none of them matter. So that that's my um, choice, and I, I would say I would suggest it's, it's still very much worth reading as a poem in its own right today. Now moving on to um, the twentieth and twenty first century, some more more sort of recent works, just as a sort of of a parting shot. What would you say in more recent secularist, humanist, free thought books you would you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, so maybe this, uh, I guess, kind of rounds off the um, the things that 
we've we've discussed really um i would choose and i would uh, recommend to people um dora russell's autobiographical the tamarisk tree which was published first in 1975 dora russell was aside from being bertrand russell's wife uh, she was herself uh, an incredible intellect uh, a really impressive activist uh, for all sorts of things uh, humanism peace and women's rights very much. Uh, and she also founded a school uh, with Bertrand Russell um, to kind of enact her her principles of um, of essentially raising children with uh, love as the the central element and, and happiness as the, the central goal. And it's it's fascinating to read about her life, to read about her experience of being uh, married to this also very impressive um, and very well-known and highly regarded man and her fears during that marriage of being kind of overshadowed by him. Um, but also f- uh, to hear more about her involvement with some of the major efforts, particularly for, as I say, women's rights, reproductive rights, um, and generally a, a kind of more reasoned, rational attitude to sex and sexuality, which was a really central part of, of her life and work. Thank you. That sounds that sounds really interesting. And um, Bob, what about you? Right. Um, for my final selection, I've gone for a fun choice, but there is a serious element too. Barbara Smoker's My Godforsaken Life. Um, it's an autobiography, charmingly and engagingly written by one of the longest serving NSS presidents who held the office for nearly 25 years from 1972 to 1996. Here is a woman who became eminent among free thinkers. She published this book in 2018 and died about 18 months ago at the grand old age of 96. And she stayed active within the free thought movement till her death. Barbara brought a degree of humour to most things she did. And while the book is laced with uh, amusing anecdotes, it also deals with enduring secularist themes such as the individual's right to control their fertility, abortion, assisted dying, church-state separation, free speech and the role of the churches in education and so on and so forth. One thing she felt particularly strongly about was infant baptism and in the 1980s introduced de-baptism certificates to the NSF (laughs) which were sold to raise funds and with which the purchaser solemnly disowned their infant baptism. I believe some held de-baptism ceremonies at which Barbara officiated. She also did a line in heretical Christmas cards. And, and I think she was also quite um, big in the, um, the gay rights movement, wasn't she? Yes, she had lots to say on that subject. I would also say with Barbara Smoker that, as as Bob says, it's a, a a great read and a fascinating insight into into her life. And, and I also really like something that Barbara Smoker said in an interview. I think with the New Humanist celebrating many decades of activism um, in in the humanist movement, where she she talked about having this kind of reputation for being almost exhaustingly 
against everything, always challenging and fighting things. And she she basically said very eloquently that you, you need to be against things in order to show what it is that you're for. You've got to clear clear the way for for being for things, for being positive about things. Um, and I think that's really significant too, because certainly within humanism and secularism, there can be this sense sometimes that it's been this, um, you know, centuries long tradition of fighting things, fighting against things, which is, is certainly an aspect of it, of course. But at, at the heart of that is is standing for what you believe in for for promoting the values that you care about and for working towards this freedom for everyone and I think that's something that's very much a a part of who Barbara Smoker was um, and a a part of what these traditions still are about today. Um, Yeah thank you very much Maddie yeah and and, I mean this whole idea of of questioning things as a way of of clearing the egos right back to Socrates I mean it's, it's very much fundamental to the western approach to thinking I think altogether. Just to my very final little suggestion. This would be a book by Caroline Forrest, the, the former Charlie Hebdo journalist who previously spoke on our podcast. I think very, very eloquent and articulate speaker. Um, and her, her book is called um, Praise of Blasphemy. She's written all sorts of books. This one I've chosen partly because it's never been published in print in English. It's been published on, in a Kindle form after the intervention of Salman Rushdie. Um, in, in French, it was originally Eloge du Blasphème. Um, but English American publishers have been just incredibly chary of actually printing it. They're so worried of what the consequences might be. And I think this really takes us um, up to date with the, the real problems that and challenges that we as, as secularists and humanists and advocates of free thought still face. The, the book is a defense of why Charlie Hebdo published some of the Mohammed cartoons or republished them from um, the Danish um, magazine Jyllandsposten. It's it's a defence of Charlie Hebdo's approach to anti-racism, anti-fundamentalism, why their approach is the most liberal approach. Um, and it's an argument for making a very strong distinction between blasphemy um, and Islamophobia and the, and the problems with Islamophobia as a term. Um, it's really trying to bring clarity to the debate and to articulate what secularism really means. And I think actually France is doing a much better job of articulating what what laicite, what secularism is, than we in, in Britain or um, elsewhere in the Anglophone world are at the moment. Um, and she really, really makes a very powerful case um, against self-censorship and, and the problems with what happens once you start censoring yourself in all sorts of respect and in terms of your opinions about religion or anything else. Just, just to give you a couple of quotations, um, she says, it's taken us hundreds of years of struggle against religious dictatorship to become a secular democracy, and the right to commit blasphemy as a cornerstone of our struggle, our most sacred asset. And, you know, provided that freedom of expression is not used as a pretext to promote hatred and violence, and that's the line which, which obviously has to be drawn, the refusal to be intimidated is the greatest challenge faced by today's generation. For me, I think that's a really powerful point that she makes to, to raise this question of, well, where are we going now? Um, how do we defend free speech for the future? Can I, can I just throw something else in, Emma? Yeah, sure, Bob. Uh, the uh, banning blasphemy is obviously a problem one that uh, free thinkers have uh, encountered <laughs> ever since the idea of free thought came along, really. But there's also another danger, and that's the danger of being deliberately excluded and ignored. And this is almost as big a threat to our ideas 
uh, as banning is. After all, sometimes prohibitions, banning things, makes them more popular. But what we're confronted with more these days is the problem of being ignored. And I think there are questions to be asked, for example, as to why none of these characters we've talked about really get much coverage on the BBC, why it is that when there was a by-election in Batley very recently, the issue of Batley School and its effective, well, it didn't dismiss teachers, but the question came up about... They the suspended them, yeah. They suspended them and the materials that were used. This was entirely ignored. It was ignored because it's too difficult. But being too difficult doesn't mean it's not important. Absolutely. Perhaps it just takes courage. It takes the courage of someone like Caroline Forrest or, or the Charlie Hebdo journalist just to keep on talking, to keep on trying to articulate and to clarify what's going on, um, to give people a means of, of expressing these ideas in a way which shows that they are rational, they do make sense, and they're not just all the labels with which their opponents brand them, such as uh, racist and so forth. The courage of a Bradlaw, Emma, whose most recent biography was very appropriately titled Dare to Stand Alone. Absolutely. <laughs> Bob Forder and Maddie Goodall, thank you very much. Thanks. Nice to talk to you both. Thank you. And although he would probably have shied away from labels like secularist, humanist or agnostic, I'm going to leave the last word to Edward Fitzgerald, whose poem encapsulated a fundamental sense of doubt about life and death that is as resonant today as it was in 19th century England, or for that matter, 11th century Persia. In the present climate of ideological certainty, Fitzgerald's doubt can be liberating. For in and out, above, about, below, tis nothing but a magic shadow show, played in a box whose candle is the sun, round which we phantom figures come and go. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.